You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading today is Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, You shall call his name Ishmael, but because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Go ahead, take your seats. Um, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. And um, this here is Keith, one of our elder candidates. He's going to be bringing the word this morning. Um, Thankful for you, brother. Thankful for your friendship, thankful for your love of the word, and so I'm going to pray over him and then let you loose here. Lord, um, I, just, I thank you that you're a self-revealing God who has spoken to us, given us a, a word that discloses truth about yourself to us, that has been preserved for our upbuilding and edification, correction, training, and that um, your word is such that by it we lack nothing. And so I pray as Keith opens it up this morning that you, Holy Spirit, would empower his reading, unpack the text, do the work he can't by unpacking it in our hearts. And Jesus, we pray you would be made much of, and it's in your great name we pray this to the Father. Amen. Thanks, Keith. Thank you, brother. Well, uh, welcome. It's good to be here with you uh, this morning. Um, Just on the front end here, I just want to say a couple of things. We're going to get into this story and there's three prominent figures, and uh, you know they're Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. We've already seen them in the text, but this text is not first and foremost about those three figures. This text is first and foremost about God and what God does in in this story. So we're going to spend a lot of time. Uh, talking about, looking at the lives, the decisions, the choices, but we will land at the end, we'll see this, but I want you to know that through all of this, God is the one who is operating. God is the one who is the center of this text. God is the one who is accomplishing his will. So let me just uh, open in prayer again and pray for a time. Father, uh, we come to you and ask, and, and as Josh has just so uh, eloquently said, God, this, there's a work that needs to be done on our hearts. And it is not something that a preacher can do. It is something that only you can do by your spirit. And God, I would ask that you would, that you would take weak words, weak human words, and apply them to our hearts. Convict us. And uh, God, we, we pray that your grace would just pour out 
and, uh, and fill us. May we, may we be changed by your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I've titled this sermon, uh, Blessing Through Brokenness, and I want to be clear about what I mean with the title. I'm not talking about blessing that comes to us in our brokenness. This isn't a story about Ruth, whose faithfulness God rewards. This isn't last week's story about Abram, whose faith God credits as righteousness. I'm talking about the fallout and the aftermath that comes from incredibly foolish, sinful, and wicked decisions that we make. And the only grace in the situation is that God forgives us when we repent. I'm talking about situations and sins that we are ashamed to talk about, sins that we have confessed to God and to those who are affected by them, but sins that we don't want to revisit. David murdering Uriah so he could have Bathsheba kinds of sins. As Christians, we're thankful that God has recorded for us in the Scriptures these stories of redemption. These stories give us hope that God redeems sinners like us, failures like we are. And this morning, the account that we're looking at is that kind of story. Abram is going to make a really foolish decision, a decision that will affect the rest of his life. It will change the dynamics of his marriage. It will change the dynamics of his household. Because of this foolish decision, Abram will have to do some things later on in his life that he will wish he didn't have to do. And here's the heart of the message this morning. God is going to redeem Abram's foolish, sinful actions. God is going to bless through Abram's sinful decisions, but that blessing is going to go to someone else. And Genesis uh, Genesis 16 is going to teach us this morning about about temptation, temptations that uh, Abram and Sarai face, temptations that you and I face. It's going to teach us about waiting and the hard work of waiting. It's going to teach us about shortcuts, sinful shortcuts that we are prone to take, and it's going to tell us about how God redeems our brokenness. So these opening words in chapter 16 describe the situation facing Abram, and it's a stark contrast to the high point of chapter 15. And in verse 1 we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There's the dilemma in a nutshell. There is the problem that Abram is facing. Abe is caught between a rock and a hard place, and it's not something that he can fix. We read in verse 16 that Abram is 86 years old when his son Ishmael is born. And we know from the next chapter that Sarai is 10 years older, or sorry, 10 years younger than Abram. Sarai, right now, is 75 years old in this chapter as this story is unfolding. Abe is desperate, and we see that the uh, in chapter 15, that the faith that he had back there, it's now frail and faltering, and we have no idea how long it's been for Abraham since God spoke to him back in chapter 15. But he and Sarai's actions show that they are at their wit's end. The tension is rising in the storyline as we read in verse 2, when Sarah comes to Abram and says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. There's a subtext going on in verse 2 that we need to notice. Sarai and Abram believed God's promise to provide an heir, but they've come to a place where they think God needs their help. And we need to see their frailties in these, um, in these 
two men and women, while at the same time we recognize that they exhibit faith in the midst of their failures. They should not be commended for their actions, but for their faith. And between the high point of Genesis 15 and the beginning of Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai's faith is being tested. And they're tempted to take matters into their own hands. And growing up, we all face temptations of many kinds, who we're going to hang out with, what we're going to do or not do with our friends. And I had a friend like that, uh, that my parents uh, were concerned, would lead me into you know, bad choices. And I, I grew up with them. I went to church with them. I rode motorbikes with them. My parents were good friends with his parents. And parents are usually afraid of the big bad things that, you know, friends can lead you into, to things like, you know, drugs and sex and alcohol. But it's actually the small things, the things that are not as obvious, things that often hide in plain sight that are more dangerous. This friend did indeed uh, introduce me to pornography, but it was actually his rebellious attitude that was far more dangerous. And it it touched everything. His fort in the woods was a place to stash contraband. He was cruel to his younger sister, taunting her with words, ridiculing her about her weight and her looks. And he'd use his motorbike to outrun cops and tear through neighbors' properties and just be an all-around jerk. And temptation often comes to us through people who are close to us, like the friend I mentioned. And temptation never starts out in the big things, like alcohol, sex, and drugs. Temptation starts in small ways. Life is hard. Take something to ease the pain or the drudgery. Buy this thing to make you happy. Take up this hobby. Have a little fun. Just don't go overboard. Temptation almost always makes sense, or at least we're able to make sense out of it. We justify temptation. I worked hard, so I deserve this. My life sucks, so I'm going to do this little thing for me. Often, we associate temptation with pleasure, but temptation comes in other forms. Anger. Someone cuts us off on our drive home, so we flip the middle finger at them or control, or fear. Our kid doesn't get played on their rep team, so we band together with other parents, or we go after the coach to try and control the situation. And in all of these situations, we justify and rationalize our response to temptation. This is the situation that Abram and Sarai find themselves in. God has said that he would give Abram an heir, and they've been waiting. In fact, verse 3 says that they've been waiting for 10 years. This is a hard situation. What do we do when we get into hard situations like this? We take matters into our own hands because we know the clock is ticking. If we want children, there's a point of no return. There's an age when you need to make this happen by. And if we're approaching that age, we got to make things happen. That's the situation that Sarah and Abram are in, except for two things. First, God has promised an heir. And second, Sarai and Abram are 75 and 85 years old. That's a little different. In vitro is not an option. So the good is that God has promised, but the bad is The expiry date is way past the definitely do not eat stage. Sarai and Abram are looking at their circumstances and they land at a decision. They have to step in. God needs their help. So Sarai does what a good woman, what good women should do. She talks to her husband. But Sarai gives Abram some bad counsel. And what we have here is 
the classic human attempt to solve a problem with human wisdom. In verse 2, Sarai comes to Abram and says, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And the temptation comes to Abram from someone who's close to him. And there's an eerie resemblance to an earlier chapter. Back in Genesis chapter seven, 3, verse 17, God says these words to Abram, or sorry, to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Same words, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Sarai's counsel in chapter 16 sounds like wisdom, but the hiss of the serpent is in her words. Human wisdom, if it does not align with God's word, is something that we must recognize as lies from the devil. In chapter 15, God had spoken. God, who does not lie, who made a binding covenant with Abram, had said all that needed to be said about Abram's heir. He would provide one in his time. And just as Adam listened to his wife and ate the fruit, Abram listens to his wife's bad counsel. Now, there's a couple things that we need to say at this point. This does not mean that wives are prone to giving bad counsel. Genesis 2, in Genesis 2, God gives Eve to Adam as a help. And this wasn't just limited to making babies. Eve was to help Adam in every way, including providing wise counsel. Wives know their husbands, and they can see things their husbands miss. And God meant for them to use this knowledge for good. My wife is the first person I go to for counsel. I have blind spots, and she knows about them. She discerns things that I miss. But wives can also exploit their, this knowledge of their husband to undermine and control and bend them to their will. We're, we can do both things. And wives are like that. They can give good counsel and bad counsel. But there are other factors at work here in both Sarai and Abram that we need to consider. So just to recap as we move forward, Sarai and Abram have received a promise that God is going to give them an heir, but it's been a while. It's been a while since they've heard from God, and they're getting old, really old. And they're tempted now to do something about it. In fact, they've moved beyond temptation. But temptation exploits desires that already lurk within us. They're already there. We read in James chapter 1, verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The desires are there. They're already inside us, lurking. They just lack opportunity. Your boss fires you, and anger rears its head. Your child gets sick, and fear drives you to sacrifice your marriage or your relationships with your other children in order to protect the, the one who's sick. When things aren't going well at home, you're fighting with your spouse about parenting or money or the friends they hang out with, and a coworker comes along, pays you a compliment, and you begin to fantasize. Temptations are simply opportunities for our desires to manifest themselves. And Sarai and Abram have desires. And they're willing to sin in order to get those desires. For Sarai, it is clearly a child. And for Abe, it is probably just a peaceful home. As I already mentioned, Sarai's bad counsel does not mean that she's in league with the devil 
It's easy to see that there are actually good things that are motivating Sarah. Sarah is desperate to see God's promise fulfilled. And she longs for this child that God has promised as only a woman who has waited for decades to have children can understand. These desires are good, but Sarah is also desperate. She is panicking. And with enough time and pressure, these sinful desires take over and drive Sarai to take control of the situation. And now Sarai has crossed the line from desire and temptation to disobedience and unbelief. This is the anatomy of temptation. This is what temptation looks like. This is how it functions in our lives. But Sarai is not the only one to have sinful desires that she acts on. Like Adam, Abram fails to protect his wife. Back in chapter 12, when Adam told Sarai to tell whoever asked that she was his sister, Abram was afraid for himself, and he failed to protect Sarai physically. Now in Genesis 16, Abraham fails to protect Sarai from her own bad counsel. And men have two tendencies. Sometimes we do both. The first is to dominate or to be harsh. Our wives come to us with counsel, even good counsel. And rather than appreciate them, rather than thanking God for the good gift and help that they are to us, we are cool to, towards them, we're, or we're indifferent. We reject their counsel. We belittle, we ridicule, we make, make them feel small or unimportant. We can do nasty, terrible, mean-spirited, uncaring stuff. And I've done these things. I've done some of these things in this last week. This tendency is sinful. And brothers, when it happens, and just in case you're unaware, your wife will usually point these things out to you. When it happens, don't blow up at them. Don't walk away. Don't swear at them. They may not get it all right they may not say it in a way that you receive well, but you should listen and you should be ready to repent. The other tendency that we have is to be passive, to not lead, to abdicate our responsibility to lead. God gave wives to be helpers to their husbands, and they often have good counsel. And we would be fools to not welcome and not seek out their counsel. But there are times when our wives are fearful or angry or trying to control a situation in pain or just flat out sinning, and rather than lead, we abdicate. Rather than do the right thing, we take the easy road. And this is what happens to Abram. Abram wants peace. Abram desires peace. Just, just make the noise go away. And he's willing to sin to get it. I'm sure that the offer of a second woman and the benefits that come with it were not lost on Abraham either, but rather than reminding Sarah of God's promises, rather than remaining resolute, rather than leading Sarai through the roller coaster of her emotions, Abram capitulates. He gives in. But when we do this, when we let our wives lead, it's selfish. We do it because it's easier to agree than it is to pursue our wives. It's easier to capitulate than to care and live through the tears and the constant conversations in order to protect and win and lead our wives. And we fail to care for and protect our wives from themselves and from their own sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Men, we must pursue our wives, as Paul commanded, by continually pointing them back to God's word and God's promises. Abram had a responsibility to care for and protect Sarai, and he failed. Waiting takes work. Abram and Sarai did not do this well. God didn't give Abram and Sarai a timeline in chapter 15, but he had been emphatically clear. I mean, if you understand, and Josh pointed out last week that Abram understood the meaning behind walking between these two carcasses that were split apart, if you understand that image, you know that it leaves an impression. Abram could take God's promise to the bank. That's what the covenant communicated. But this is exactly where Abram goes wrong. He goes to the bank and tries to cash the check rather than wait for God to provide the promise in his time. Abram takes it upon himself to help God to bring the promise about. And the work in waiting largely goes unrecognized. Let me say that again. The work in waiting largely goes unrecognized. And here's what I mean. What we're talking about is not waiting for Friday and the weekend to start. The kind of waiting we're talking about is more like Christmas to a five-year-old. The waiting starts 25 days before and culminates with one to two hours of restless sleep and five hours of waiting for your parents to get up. Waiting takes work. It's work waiting for your child to get through those teen years, trusting that God hears the cries of the righteous. It's waiting to find a spouse as all your friends and siblings get married, believing that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It's waiting to get pregnant after you've been trying for three years, to come um, trusting that God's grace is sufficient for you. It's waiting for decades for your spouse to come to faith, believing that God does not desire any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. It's your spouse waiting for you to stop making your business the focus of your life as they pray that you would not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What I've quoted here are promises that we read in God's word, promises that we can pray, promises that God wants us to believe. In all, all our seasons of waiting, and we're always waiting for something. It's easy to settle for second best, to manipulate situations or people, to make our lives easier or to give us what we want, to take shortcuts or to bend the rules a little bit. Brothers and sisters, we need to pause and ask ourselves honestly, what is it that we desire? Why do we desire the things that we desire? Are, are our motives good in the things that we desire? Are they right? Because it's easy to deceive ourselves. But here's a surefire way. You don't get many of these things you know, in life where somebody comes up or a preacher comes up and says, here's, here's a surefire way. So, so mark this down. Here's a surefire way to know where your heart is at. Look at how well you wait. How well do we wait? Waiting is hard work. Isaiah gives us a very unique perspective on waiting. In Isaiah 40, God says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God turns waiting on its head in these verses. Waiting that finds its strength and power in man, in man's plans, in man's ideas, will always fail. But as we see in Isaiah 40, waiting that has its source in God has unlimited power and strength. The infinitely powerful God gives power to the faint and strength to the weary, and the source of this power and strength is found where? In Jesus Christ, in his promises. Where is the strength when we are weary of waiting? It's in God's promises. It's in knowing that what God has said, he will do. But we know that Abram and Sarai did not wait for God to keep his promise. Instead, Abram disobeys God and listens to Sarai and to his flesh. Have you ever wondered who the second woman is? Is or where she comes from. Where, where does Hagar come from? Well, the, we, we see it right in the first uh, verse here that Hagar is an Egyptian. In Genesis 16, this is the first time that we've heard about this woman. And it's likely that Hagar has become part of the household during the ill-fated adventure back in Genesis chapter 12 down into Egypt. And I don't want us to lose sight of a couple of massive lessons here. First, our past always catches up to us. Our sins find us out. It's a scriptural principle that cannot be altered, and it's what is happening here. Sinful decisions are catching up with Abram. When Abram takes Hagar as a wife, he is simply following the customs of his culture. These cultural practices uh, confront our own cultural sensitivities, but documents from that time period, and there are documents that, that, uh, that we can translate now, they describe this practice that's going on of taking a concubine in order to provide an heir when your spouse is unable to have children. But those same documents also provide recourse when the situation doesn't work out like our circumstances, for domestic disputes. And, and this is what happens when we look to the culture for answers instead of God's word. Abram and Sarai knew that God had given them instructions for marriage. They were to be committed exclusively to one another, as we read in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man, singular, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they together become one flesh. But when we leave these instructions and instead listen to man's wisdom, it always leads to sin and conflict. And so Hagar becomes proud and resents Sarai. Sarai sees this and blames Abram for not protecting their marriage. And Abram, once again, he fails to lead his household. He fails to protect Hagar, who's the most vulnerable in this situation and of all these guilty parties. And he puts the responsibility on Sarai to deal with the situation. And the, the scene ends with Sarai fleeing from, or sorry, Hagar fleeing from Sarai's wrath. And what we see in all of this is that sin is often a quick way, a shortcut to get what we want. 
My brother Trevor is uh, a master of shortcuts. Now, I do want to say I, I really respect my brother Trevor. I'm going to throw him under the bus here, but I do respect him. He's a remarkable farmer and fabricator and mechanic. And yeah, he's a, he's a fabricator, yeah. He, yeah, I could tell you some stories. Um, but he, he could cobble, a, you know, a fence that was down, he could, he could cobble it back together with, uh, with, with spit and a piece of wire. I mean, he, he was incredible. If we had a breakdown, he could get us up and running faster than anybody I know. He was a, a master of hacks, but there was always a cost. You always had to pay the piper because if you take a shortcut, invariably it bites you. You might be chasing cows at 12.30 in the morning or fishing a PTO shaft out of the manure pond. You might save an hour here, but it would cost you four at some point. And our lives are the same kind of mess when we look to our culture for wisdom on how to live or what we should live for. It happens when we take shortcuts instead of doing the hard work of obeying God. Jesus says these words in Matthew 7, Broad is the way and wide is the path that leads to destruction. And Jesus is talking here about the easy road. But following Jesus is not the easy road. James says something similar. He says in James 4, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sin promises so much and delivers so little. Abram and Sarai took the easy way, hoping that it would be a quick path to what God promised and what they wanted. But as is always the case with sin, it lands them in a mess. It happened when Abram led his household down into Egypt. It happened again when Lot chose the fertile valley uh, in the Jordan, and it happens in our own lives when we follow the culture and don't disobey God's commands or just simply fail to trust God. Our sin always finds us out. This was the first lesson. But the second lesson that we will see throughout the remainder of this chapter is that God uses sin, the sinful choices and the foolish decisions of his people for his good purposes. So Hagar's just fled from Sarah's wrath. She's headed for Egypt. And we read that the angel of the Lord meets her in the wilderness by a spring of water on the way to Shur. Now, Shur is on Egypt's doorstep. So Hagar has almost made it home. The, the, this reference to Egypt here is not an accident either. Remember that uh, the greater purpose in, in Genesis is that Moses is writing a history for the people of Israel. And over and over again, the people talk about going back to Egypt. We read these words in Exodus 16. And the people of Israel said to them, that's to Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Egypt was a place of ease, a place where crops were watered from the ground and food grew in plenty. It was a place where you didn't need to trust God to supply your needs. And God didn't want Israel going back there. So the story of Hagar is a pointed reminder to the people of Israel not to go back to Egypt. That's also what's going on in this storyline. But all of us have an Egyptian option. A place that we want to return to. A place where there is no worry or fear. A place where you can make your own rules. Where rules about sexual purity and business practices aren't so black and white. Where you can indiscriminately let someone else teach your kids. kids. Where you can watch whatever you want to watch on your phone. Where you can fit in without feeling guilty. 
But it's sort of funny because Egypt was a place of slavery for Israel. And yet they longed to go back to the wealth and security and ease that it offered. Israel longed for the pots of food that Egypt promised and forgot the slavery that went with it. And the temptation to go back to Egypt is real for all of us. To go back to a life that is less hard, less isolating, less costly. But to go back to Egypt is to go back to slavery. It's to return to the world. It's slavery to sin and to the flesh. And against this backdrop, what happens next is even more remarkable. There is a conversation that happens between Hagar and the angel of the Lord. And I think the text in verse 13 makes it clear that it is God that Hagar is talking to. We read in verse 13 that she's speaking to Yahweh. And Hagar's transparency with the angel of the Lord suggests that she knows she is safe and that this being is someone that she can trust. And the first thing that the angel of the Lord says to Sarai, return to Sarah. Sorry, the first thing the angel of the Lord says to Hagar is return to Sarai and submit to her. Why, why does the angel of the Lord give her this counsel? Why doesn't God want Hagar to return to Egypt? I mean, Hagar's an Egyptian. She was born in Egypt. She was raised in Egypt. Egypt's her home. And I think the answer comes to us in the blessing that God promises to Hagar. You see, God has pursued Hagar. God sees Hagar as a person, not as a servant or a piece of chattel to be owned. Yahweh sees her. And then God makes this unbelievable promise to an Egyptian woman of no standing. And, she, and he instructs Hagar then to return to Abram. And though the text does not say these words, her actions suggest that Hagar believed God and obeyed and returned to Abram. And, and there's, a, there's a blessing. God blesses Hagar in this exchange. God promises to create a second nation, just like God had promised Abram. It would be a different people through a different son, and Hagar would be the matriarch, the mother of this new nation. It's, in, it's incredible. God but God prophesies that there is going to be conflict. The promise did not mean that there would be smooth sailing between these two nations. God promised that there would be conflict and war, but despite the conflict and the war, there was still blessing. So don't miss this. Hagar is a servant. Likely, Abram bought or traded for her on their journey uh, down to Egypt back in chapter 12. But Hagar has no standing. And she really has no hope for any standing. She has been treated like a female you, whose sole purpose is to bear offspring. And yet the Lord comes to her. This chapter is about God. But it is specifically about how God pursues the weak, the lowly, the unlovely, the outcast, the broken, those who are ashamed, and those who have been shamed. And Hagar gets this. The matriarch of the Ishmaelites is the only woman in the Bible to name God. She calls God El-Rai. You are a God who sees me. And don't miss the significance of, of Hagar's words here. Hagar is a nobody even to God. Hagar's offspring will not inherit the blessing promised to Abraham. And yet, God pursues Hagar. So think about this. These are the formative documents of Israel's history. We're reading 
their declaration of independence. So why is Genesis 16 about an Egyptian servant girl? Something's going on here that God wants us to see. Hagar is an Egyptian, but she's also a Gentile. And what we see here in Genesis 16 is that through the faltering faith of the patriarch of Israel, Abraham, God lays his plan to bless the nations. Back in Genesis 12, 3, we saw these words and read these words. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, he's talking about Abram here, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These words lay the foundation for the gospel to one day go out to the nations. And with Hagar, we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of this promise, God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. One final observation that I want us to see in this passage is how God views Hagar. Abram and Sarai treat Hagar like dry goods to be used, but when Hagar meets the angel of the Lord, she knows that she has been seen. What does this even mean? Think about this. Hagar is an outcast. Sarai has savagely driven her out of her home. Her hopes and dreams, I'm sure, did not include marrying a 90-year-old man. She's alone and unloved. And God comes to her. He doesn't take the pain and loss away from Hagar. He doesn't make her life better. In fact, he tells her to go back to the source of her pain, to travel hundreds of miles back to the women who has driven her out. And this is what she does. All because God has seen her. Somehow God seeing Hagar changes everything for Hagar. Not externally, but something is different inside of Hagar. God looks at Hagar and knows her. To be seen is to be known. And this is how Hagar describes God when she says in verse 13, You are the God who sees me. For someone to be able to look into your soul and see you, really see who you are, to see all your blackest secrets and your deepest hurts and your greatest longings and not reject you. This is what Hagar experiences with God. Hagar has an experience of God that changes her. It changes the direction that she's traveling. She goes back to Sarai and Abram. It changes her attitude. She submits to Sarah. It changes her destination. She doesn't go back to Egypt, but instead returns to the house and the man that God has promised to bring blessing through. This sounds like repentance. And repentance is what happens when a person experiences the goodness of God. The band's going to come up now and lead us in response to what we've heard. But as we close this morning, I want to ask you a question, Praxis. Have you benefited from the blessing that God has promised through Abram? These emblems, the juice or wine and the bread point to the one who would come and bear the sins of the world. They are for those who have put their faith and trust in the one who would bear their sins, Jesus. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve the promises that God made to him. In fact, he did many things that made him deserve God's wrath. And like Abraham, we have lived foolish, sinful lives. But like Abraham, 
God's promise is for us. The only difference is that we have seen this promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And like Abraham, we can receive the blessing of the promise, forgiveness of our sins and relationship with God. This morning, God sees you just as he saw Hagar. He sees your sin. He sees your hurt. He knows your deepest longings, and he says, I am your shield, your very great reward. God is better than your sin. He is better than anything you are pursuing right now. He is better than anything you will ever have. He is bigger than your pain. We often say or quote the Psalms, God gives us the desires of our heart, but the first thing that God does with our desires is he changes them. You won't want the same things you wanted before, but you will have him. If you've not trusted Jesus, God offers you this gift of his grace this morning. And I would urge you to respond to his offer by calling out to him to save you. We're going to uh, close in prayer right now. And um, the band will uh, lead us. And uh, we will uh, partake of the emblems. Father God, we thank you that... You are, you are great. This chapter is, is not about the failing and faltering and weak faith of Abraham and Sarah. This chapter is about you who meet us in our brokenness and, and bless us despite our failures. And we thank you, God, for being this kind of God who receives sinners. And this morning, I just pray for us as a, as a people. There is an opportunity to be right with you this morning, whether we are on, whether we already know Christ as our Savior or don't. And God, we thank you that your grace is new every morning. And I, I would just pray that we would, that we would receive the grace that comes from partaking of the bread and the wine. In Christ's name we pray, amen.